Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. So welcome over to Product. Today, I'm here with Jeremy Henriksen, who is the VP of Product and Engineering at Rippling. Welcome, Jeremy. It's good to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So why don't we kick this off by getting a little overview of your background? Uh, sure. So I uh, grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, just a, uh, a shy kid there uh, doing all my little technical things. I uh, first got exposed to computers pretty young as my dad was super into them. And so I grew up in the kind of early 80s with a uh, Apple II Plus at home. And my first exposure to programming was, was way back then, learning to write some adventure games by you know copying things out of another book that told me how to write adventure games. But that ultimately morphed into the, the career path that I took. Taught myself how to code after my senior year in high school and ended up at college and fell in love with just building stuff. And I found that after a year or so of doing that, what I really loved was not the engineering in isolation, but was rather the how people interacted around computers or how people interacted with each other around computers. And that interaction over time sort of led me to, to product. And I've been there, you know, for the last 25 years or so. Yeah, that's interesting. For me, it was an Apple IIe. That was the, the beginning yeah. <laughs> of writing, you know, quote unquote code, though. I, I think I knew basic pretty early, you know. Yeah, um, I, was, I was a little jealous of people who had Apple IIe's. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think for, for me at the time, the, the IIe was just, you know, was a little old. I think my, a couple of my friends had Macs right around then. So, you know, it was kind of like they were on the, the cutting, cutting edge. I don't think there's yeah. much they could do with them. You know, they they showed me things like word processors and stuff, but uh, no, but they looked cool. They did. They did look really <laughs> cool. I was super stoked with my 2E because there was much better games on the 2E than there were on uh, the Mac. Yeah. Uh, so it was definitely interesting. So talk to me about what, you know, making that jump into product, what got you there? Yeah. So I think it really did start when I was in, in college and it had this insight that uh, I really liked the sort of the people aspect of it. And that got me into programming graduate school in design and human computer interaction. And I spent kind of a number of years doing that. And then I ended up with this company called Reactivity after finishing grad school. And it was founded by a bunch of people I'd, I'd gone to school with. It was really early there. And we ended up, this is during the internet one, right? The late, very late nineties. And we were doing, we were both kind of starting up businesses and doing like consulting for companies that were trying to figure out what this internet thing was and how to build products for it. And so I would come in and help them with the engineering, but very quickly realized that my actual job was helping them understand you know, the user and the product that they were trying to build and how that could work with this new set of technologies uh, around the internet. And so I ended up without knowing what it was really called or having any understanding of any sort of formal definition, I was doing product. And so when I left there, I took a little time to figure out whether I wanted to go do something totally different. But when I came back to it, I ended up a company called Guidewire and was officially in a product role. And that's really where I kind of cut my teeth in that function. Awesome. Well, we'll get to Guidewire and some of your other you know, <laughs> career choices, past experiences, but let's talk about Rippling for a second. Tell me a little sure. bit about you know Rippling, what you're solving there now, what teams you oversee, uh, what the big challenges are. 
Yeah. So at Rippling, the problem that we're trying to solve is that there are every business in the world has a bunch of systems they need to run. They need to pay people. So they need a payroll system. They might want to offer benefits. So they need insurance and benefit system. They need to manage people's identity and access people's devices uh, and so on and so forth. And all of these systems rely on a set of information about kind of the employee and other people in the workforce. Sometimes it's as simple as a name, might be an address where they live or where they work, so you can calculate taxes appropriately. Um, It might be where they live, it might be something about their organizational relationship. And the problem is that there isn't a single system of record for all those. These systems, none of them is the source of truth. And so you end up with a tremendous amount of sort of administrative and bespoke integration work to keep all these systems in sync. People whose whole job it is to sit there with, uh, pull stuff out of one system, copy it into a spreadsheet, make sure everything's okay in that spreadsheet and push it to another system. And voila, now you run payroll. Uh, And our thesis is that that's just the wrong way to do things, that the right way to do things is to have a single system of record and build on a first party basis a whole bunch of products on top of that to do payroll and insurance and benefits and device management, identity management, so on and so forth. And in doing so, you create not just a single system of record, but you create a technology platform on top of which a whole bunch of these products can consistently run, which creates a better user experience, better vendor experience, and and just overall more kind of efficacious uh, universe for, for companies who really don't want to focus on those systems at all, but they want to focus on their business. And, and we hope we're enabling them to do that. So my responsibility is to look out over product and engineering for all of those products. And it's a really fun job. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's interesting when you're talking about, you know, all of the disparate systems that use that same kind of set of underlying data, right, on the HR side of things, whether it's payroll systems, whether it's authentication systems, whether it's just, you know, joining the right Slack groups and listservs and that type of stuff, right? Right. That's exactly right. And what what I found is like, you know, there's HR systems and there's these IT systems and there's these finance systems and they all operate on the same data. And then you just pointed out that there's this whole constellation of other things outside of that Slack and G Suite and all the rest. And wouldn't it be great if when an employee started at a company, they just automatically got assigned to the right Slack groups and the right GitHub repositories and the right policy for being able to buy lunch from DoorDash without ever having to go to GitHub or to the Slack admin panel or to the DoorDash. Like yeah, that should I, just all happen. Yeah. And it's just a hiring manager that pushes a button, says hire and like says hire for this type of role and everything else is just yeah. based upon the, the workflows yeah. who are set up. That's right. That's exactly right. And it just happens. You get added to the right things. And if you leave a company, well, Make sure you get removed from the right systems. That's the big fire button too. We have a hire and a fire button. I feel like that meme that's going around. Which button? Yeah, promote hire fire. Exactly, exactly right, exactly right. But a lot of the work is in in the middle, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Change roles and move from California to Austin or to Florida, wherever they move to, and 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 all of these kind of career changes and life changes. They're extremely burdensome to manage and track in a manual way. And so to the extent that we can create a a single trustworthy place where where all of that can happen, we think it's pretty cool. And then you can have consistent application of policies. Like in a lot of cases with promotions, you know, there's a concern of like, are you you treating people fairly, both from a diversity perspective, but just frankly, from a fairness perspective, based upon the role, what they're doing, where they live, what they're doing for the company, maybe how they sit in some nine box or whatever you use for, you know, (laughs) performance management. But then that can all be automated on the back end and then has a lot, you know, less chance of human error, less chance of bias in the system too. 
Yeah, and less chance of human error, less chance of bias, and and a single shared view. Right. You don't yeah. have to ask, you know, 14 different people or three different people to get the information you need. It's like everyone is enabled to run the exact same reports across that full set of data. Right. And and the fact that everyone is operating on like one set of data on one report and can like look at those things in a consistent fashion makes a huge, huge difference in efficiency, if nothing else. Awesome. Awesome. So we'll get back to some of the stuff you're doing at Rippling. But, you know, before then, Coinbase, right? So obviously (laughs) in the news recently, huge, you know, offering, big run up in valuation, which says a lot about, you know, both Coinbase and crypto as a whole. Talk to me about your time as CPO at Coinbase. Yeah. Wow. What a ride. You know, I feel incredibly fortunate to have been there, you know, starting kind of at the end of the crypto winter in, in 2016, all the way through the unbelievable run up in 2017, the next winter. And, and as we've kind of gone up, it's incredibly fun to help invent like a new industry and to provide some of the infrastructure to make that industry like successful. Like it all, you know, we have this very long-term vision at Coinbase, you know, around, you know, a new fun, open financial system for the world. And that continues to be kind of this incredibly long-term orientation on where things are going to go. And because that North Star remained the North Star the whole time, everything else, all the kind of the rapid movement and the change in the industry and the kind of the rise and fall of NFTs back in like, you know, 2017, early 2018, and and their re-rise now, all of these things, and then trying to build a company like in that context, right? One that is doing something valuable was just a lot of fun. You know, you're doing it with a, with a set of people who really believed in that future and a set of people who were signing up to do it in a way that we felt was was morally and ethically right, you know, on the side with the regulators, helping people understand what this really was, helping people understand what the, the potential could be. And so uh, it was a really, really fun ride. Yeah. So, you know, I have to ask you, what's your thoughts on crypto? And maybe there's different aspects too to talk about, because yeah. I think of like Bitcoin as maybe just a an asset, an asset class, where I think yeah. of Ethereum as something that they actually can be is more transactional, at least by design. I don't know. Would love. To, I yeah. mean, I'm definitely no crypto expert uh, <laughs> at all. Uh, if I was, I'd, I'd probably be a little richer than I am now. But I uh, would love to get your. <laughs> would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So I actually I don't have a strong point of view on any single like cryptocurrency. People sometimes ask me like, oh, what should I invest in? What should I buy? What should I not buy? And I actually don't have a strong point of view on that. I believe in the kind of long-term future of crypto. And the reason I believe in it on many dimensions, like whether it's as a store of value or something that will ultimately be transactional or something that will enable use cases that have never been able to be done before, is that it is, it is long-run more efficient and long-run easier to use than the current financial system in, in many ways. So whether... Bitcoin is the long-term winner or something else is, or Ethereum does really well because it's this amazing platform on on top of which you can build things like NFTs and the like or something else entirely. You know, I I think of this in the same way I think of, you know, the Medici figuring out financial systems in like 14th century or whatever, 15th century Italy, right? It's we're at the very, very, very beginning of what is a decades long journey still and how exactly it's going to shape out. I think we'll see, but that it is going to shape out in my view is inevitable on a sufficiently long timeline. You can see my crypto expertise with Doge or Doggy. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's got a dog got, on you, it. You, you, it's, got, it's, it's got the dog. It should be Doggy Coin for sure. <laughs> so talk to me about NFTs, you know, and, and, yeah. and what you see in that space now. 
You know, and, and, and frankly, I'd love yeah. to think about this from a product lens too. Like the product managers yeah. out there, how, how should they be thinking about, you know, blockchain and their businesses today, or should they be waiting? Is it something that as a, as a product person, you think it's important for the product managers out there to have like a, a stronger set of expertise around? I think that it is important to understand what it is and what it isn't, right? So a lot of people like get into crypto. Well, that's not very great advice because crypto is a very subtle thing and you have to go all the way to ground to understand what's actually going on sometimes. And so my advice to people is like something like NFTs, which I think are this amazing ability to represent something that's like that's unique on a blockchain and track provenance and track it over time is is really extraordinary. And I think it's going to enable all sorts of interesting things over time. And so is, is it important for product managers to know it? Yes, if they think it's going to be meaningful to them. But what I wouldn't recommend is just jump into it and support. It's like really find people you know that know more than you do on it and go deep. Understand what it really is and most importantly, what it really isn't. Understand the use cases that could be meaningful and, and those that are not, right? Like the fact that there's, you know, a, an, an incredibly expensive piece of art, you know, bought as a one-off as an NFT is super cool, but that's not the dominant use case. That's not the way in which this thing is going to grow and scale with the masses. And so I think if somebody's really into this, they got to they gotta figure out the details. Now, what about like ownership with NFTs too, right? I mean, I think of things like the NBA and what they're doing with like Top Shots, where it seems like you don't actually own anything. I mean, you own the digital representation, but you can't even, at least to my understanding, put it on your own website and point to it, right? Like you own it, but you can't do anything with it versus like real digital ownership of the underlying asset where, you know, in theory, you could monetize it, like have a digital art museum or what have you. What's your thought on how ownership, you know, plays a role in the whole NFT space? Like not just ownership of the asset, but I guess ownership of the rights associated with the asset. Yeah, I think it's a tricky area. And and to be candid, I am not an expert in this area. I've not been, I've been heads down and rippling for over a year now. So. <laughs> Sorry, we'll get back to I'm that not, in a minute. No, 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 it, it's fine. But I mean, my, but my view on this is kind of the same in my view in, in crypto as like a store of value, which is that it's really early days and we're sorting out these things. Like what's true ownership? I don't think ownership means one thing. You need to define it, right? Can ownership yeah, mean, yeah. you know, you have control of the asset, but not the rights to do a bunch of other things. Well, with an NFT, you can make those rights really explicit, right? You can be really fine grained about the extent to which people have ownership and really explicit about it now in a way that with kind of traditional assets, you can't, right? It's, and, and it ends up being funny, it ends up being adjudicated legally as mm-hmm. opposed to adjudicated in code. And I think the ability to kind of, to encode these things and have them kind of have, have really clear rules that are like locked down is incredibly powerful, but it's going to take a lot of iteration. Like we're not going to get it right for everything uh, up front. It's going to, they're going to be missteps. There are going to be things that work well. There are going to be things that don't work well. And over time, hopefully these mechanisms will become increasingly robust and increasingly well understood. So are you bullish on NFTs? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't buy a 67 million <laughs> piece of art or whatever the price was, even if I could. But I think that, but long run, absolutely. I think they represent a really, a really cool opportunity. I have a couple little ones myself from from the good old days, back of the back, the crypto kitty days. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I have, a, I have a friend who worked on OpenSea. So, yeah. No. There you go. Yeah. Back in the early days, yeah. you know, what, four or five years ago, maybe, maybe more. Yeah, ancient, ancient times, really. <laughs> yeah, ancient, well, ancient times, <laughs> the NFT days, it feels like. So, you know, Coinbase, going back to, you know, your, your story there, hyper growth, yeah. right? Talk to yeah. me, I mean, and you're, I assume you're going through the same 
I won't say problems, but opportunities <laughs> rippling now too, right? Managing product teams when you're having a huge amount of growth. Yeah. You know, yeah. talk to me about that process and how it's different than, you know, kind of the linear growth or the slower linear growth, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah, so slower, slower linear growth. I mean, Coinbase certainly had the most explosive growth in 2017. Our customer volumes went up like 40x, and that was a pretty incredible ride. I think it's a question of, of focus and clarity, right? I think the thing that as you grow a team quickly or as it's it, the scope of what it needs to accomplish increases dramatically, the thing that can break down very, very quickly is kind of communication and focus. So one of the things we did a lot at Coinbase kind of during those years of acceleration was like just every couple of weeks for every kind of major product initiative, we were in a room and resyncing on where it was that we were going. And we had to do that for two reasons. One is just the team was evolving so rapidly that it was just very helpful to kind of have those refreshers. But secondly, in crypto, you know, the external world moves extremely quickly and people's understanding of that world moves extremely quickly. And you can't wait for like a month or two months or a quarter to like let that influence like what you're doing. And so this much more rapid cycle was crucial, which meant, of course, that when we were hiring product leaders, we had to hire people who enjoyed that kind of world, right? You couldn't hire somebody who liked the stability of, you know, we're going to plan something now and like six months later, we're going to look at like some new, like it, it just wouldn't work that way. And so you had to find people who kind of, who loved the chaos, could embrace the chaos and bring just a little bit of order out of it and get make the next step forward and then look around again and see like, okay, what do we need to do now? And that created a you know pretty specific kind of cultural affect that I think is unique to companies that are in the in the crypto space. So, what what advice would you give to product leaders at startups that are going through that hyper growth, or even the product managers there that are going through it? You know, I mean, obviously you, you touched on communication and maybe over communication. Other advice? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say first there's communication, but there's also like alignment. So particularly at a at a relatively young company that's growing quickly, and particularly one that has a kind of product or vision oriented CEO, like that connectivity has to be really really tight. That person who is responsible for the product, whether they're responsible for an entire product line or for this feature down here, needs to be an absolute lockstep with whoever the kind of the, the final arbiter of product is, right? Whether that's like Brian at Coinbase or somebody like Parker at Rippling, both of whom were very product-oriented leaders. And my job as kind of the overall leader was not to get in the way of that, but it was to facilitate that and make sure we were kind of always lined up. And then of course, have my own opinions. And so my advice to people is make sure that line is clear, right? Make sure that you are, you, whether you're like a new PM, right? Or whether you've been around for a long time, that that full line down from CEO all the way down to local PM is as clear as it needs to be in order for that person to do their job maximally effectively. Because if it's not, what you have is a bunch of people on the ground, be they engineers or PMs or whatever, who are like all sailing in slightly different directions, and like getting everyone back together again takes way more energy than keeping people aligned in, in the first place. So I think that's that's really the big piece of it for me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about your biggest lesson learned at Coinbase when it, you know, specifically when it came to product? So I think the biggest lesson I probably learned was that rapid iteration is king in a fast moving market, right? It was much more important to build something quickly, get it out in the market, get real market feedback than it was to try to get something exactly right ahead of time. And this is particularly true in crypto because 
everyone has a thesis about what's next. Everyone has an idea about what's going to be successful and what's not. And those theses are sometimes backed by a little bit of data, but are often incredibly anecdotal. And so the only way to know for sure is to actually get something out there and test it in the market and see if it succeeds or not. And so we got really good. And I very much improved my own sort of sense of of rapid iteration to kind of get that feedback in a reasonably quick way so we could react to it. It's interesting you mentioned that too, because I I was just talking on a podcast or clubhouse the other day about rapid iteration, not just from the product standpoint, but from like the marketing and the pitch standpoint, like in the early days of Pendo, I just loved giving them, like if you had a product in your title, like, you know, whatever you were, assistant product intern, like I wanted to show you product. It didn't matter if you were like running product at Microsoft or like the dude just out of school that's dabbling in product that like wanted everyone to see demo because you know, it wasn't just about iteration for the product. It was iteration around how we pitched, how we told the story, what like what resonated. And it was just like, you keep doing these repetitively over and over again. And you learn just a ton, way more than you're going to do from like, you know, small data sets that kind of filter up through like a salesperson. So it's interesting too, that you talk about iteration. I think it's so important across the business in general, when you're small to just get reps in, whether it's product shipping reps, whether it's marketing reps or the sales pitches, like get your reps in, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think that's totally right. And I think it is not only does it help the product and the pitch, but it creates a consistency within the org too. Because with everyone actually demonstrating the product, you get a much stronger sense of where it's working and where it's not, what pitch works and what pitch doesn't. And in particularly demonstrating to like engineers, right, to get them to understand what's really going on, because they're generally speaking, not as close to the customer. And it's really easy for their mental models to get out of sync with like the customer. It's hard enough for a PM to stay in sync with what the right market mental model should be. Yeah, yeah. But for an engineer who's like spending most of their day, like trying to figure out like, what's the right architecture for like this thing? It's way further for them. And so the closer you can keep them to kind of product and demonstration and to design and to that user experience, I think the much better off the, the company is. As yeah, well. we would get some of our external engineers even to join on some of the, like the little road shows we do, like for the product meetups and just like hear what customers have to say, what they ask, what questions they have, what they say when they yeah. see the product is like super useful, you know, especially early. It, it's harder and harder as you grow, right? And that's why as you have more and more product managers, hopefully they're filling that role for engineering to some extent, but, you know, and then today's age, like they can listen to gong calls. It's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. You know, like, Hey, you bored on the weekend. You want to learn a little bit more about what customers are saying? Here's like 50 gong calls that are all recorded. Feel free to listen. So. Yeah, no, totally. And, it, and it's this great window that didn't used to exist in the past. You had to like, say, sell some engineer. Okay. You're going to take Tuesday afternoon off because we're going to go visit customer X at like site Y. And now it's just like, Nope. We were on Zoom. It's recorded. Go check it out. It's not quite the same as being live, but it's certainly better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't ask questions, but you can hear what people have to say. You know, it would be kind of cool if you could go back through and easily ask questions, get responses. So, you know, what's the team look like at Rippling? You know, you're running both product and engineering. What's the ratios look like? So the way we're organized internally is, as I think you may know, we have like eight or so products like in market, like separate freestanding products, like payroll, which competes against its own industry, like insurance and benefits competes against its own industry and so on and so forth down the line. And so each of those is a team with a kind of head of engineering and a head of product. And then of course, in typical engineering fashion, we have the underlying like core platform team in front and all the rest. And so I think the ratios depend on where you are in that spectrum. Obviously our infrastructure team doesn't need any PMs, but the product teams absolutely do. My overall personal philosophy here, which I think aligns well with what Rippling needs, 
is that one should keep PM pretty thin, not too high of a ratio, because what it does is it forces focus on the right set of things and also encourages the right sorts of PMs, right? Particularly for Rippling, like it's an incredibly entrepreneurial place. And so you, you need product leaders who, are, who understand what it means to sort of operate at that tempo, right? And to operate with like imperfect data and to make decisions quickly and all that stuff. So the ratio ends up being something like on a product team, ends up being something like one to 10, somewhere around there. Um, I think there's cases where it can be even lower. I think there's cases where it needs to be higher. And it really just depends on the specific nature of product and kind of where it is in its life cycle. And how does design fit into the ratio? Ah, that's a good question. I think in my ideal universe, it's roughly one to one with PMs. Designers uh, we, to PMs and then to, you know, 10, say on yeah. average inch. Yeah. And maybe the designer ratio needs to be a little higher than the PM ratio, just depending on how kind of user facing the product is and how much work there is there. So but roughly the same. And I think, uh, you know, in our case, designers are brought in extremely early in the process, right? Like Parker as a incredibly product focused CEO, often the beginning of a new feature might be like an email from him to our head of design. And then like, we'll mock it out there and try to figure out what we actually want. And then product gets drawn in uh, in that same conversation. And then only when we actually know what we want from like an end user experience, does engineering pull in? And that saves us a whole bunch of time kind of going down the line. Now, based on the way you, you answer that question, I'm, I'm thinking design sits outside of the product org. Is that true? That's right. So product and design are separate orgs, both reporting to me. Okay. So design, together. product, eng, all report to you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Got it. Yeah. But at the, at the same time, design is separate from product. So got it. Got that's it. right. Yeah. I mean, it's its own discipline it's, and it requires its own things. And it, yeah, uh, no, I've seen a lot of CPOs, has, yeah. right. That, that would own design too, or engineering is a separate org, you know, reporting to the CEO or, you know, chief product officer, you know, VP or CTO, you know, reporting to CEO and design would fall under the product org there. In yeah. some cases, in some cases, it's completely separate, right. Where end yeah. product and uh, design all have separate leaders reporting, you know, up to another person. So. Yeah. And I, my view here is that the actual like reporting structure and organizational structure in general matters less than particularly at our scale than like how do people actually work together? Yeah, uh, like absolutely. What's, the, what's the actual working model for, you know, here's a product and we need to build a new feature. How does that actually happen? And the, the structure on top can facilitate good or bad behavior in that, but uh, it's less important. Also <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I was going to say the structure on top can facilitate good and bad behavior. So, sure. <laughs> I think we've all seen examples of that. So now you talked about, you know, different engineering leads, different product leads in the different groups, you know, payroll, et cetera, et cetera. Do you end up moving engineering teams between them? Or is it more or less like stayed? Like how dynamic are your engineering teams? Like, do they flip between product lines depending upon you know, pushes in a particular area or is it more or less static? I would say people definitely move, but not like on a whim. It's a pretty controlled sort of movement because each of these product areas is quite different from each of the other ones. I mean, they all share a common substrate, but engineers tend to get expertise in one area and get really good at it and tend to like the team that they're on. However, we also very explicitly like people to move every once in a while because the, all, the best way to learn the lessons of the things that went well and did not go well in another team is to have people actually jump from one team to another. And so those jumps are deliberately a kind of a part of our culture uh, as well. Now, do you jump a whole team or do you jump people? Like, would you move, like, if payroll is having a big new release, would you move a team off of XYZ product to payroll and be like, hey, you're going to do this for the next six months? Or is it like, we want people to move off of one team, say the payroll team to another group? 
No, very much the latter. If I had to like say, hey, look, this whole team over here needs to shut down and like move over here, I'd be leaving on the first one like some longer term set of stuff that was now just going unstaffed and yeah, like yeah. institutional knowledge of that thing would drift away and it'd be very bad. And so you do that if you have to, right? I'm sure there are times I haven't had to do that in the 14 and a half months I've been with the company. So it's more like, oh, one or two people can move from this thing to another thing. And within these verticals, we try to be relatively self-contained which is pretty easy to do because they're all growing right now. So we're not at a point now where it's like, hey, one of these teams is like hit maturity and doesn't really need to do anything. So let's like shrink the team and move like a handful of people from here to there. We're, we're not at that stage yet. And I don't think we're going to be for a while. Interesting. Cool. Talk to me about scaling, you know, specifically, you know, you've gone through that a few times now, right? Like yeah. big challenges in scaling, especially as we're talking more and more about remote and global teams. Yeah, scaling is hard, but for some reason, I'm masochistic enough to to have made a career out of it. I think scaling is fundamentally a human issue, in my view. The the problems that I've seen, the challenges, the opportunities, whatever you want to call them, have been relatively similar across Guidewire and Coinbase and Rippling. They all have their own special flavors because the companies all are culturally a little different. But a lot of it just has to do with how humans interact with one another when they have sort of a shared cause and like how many people can communicate with one another accurately within a span of time how well can people know each other as as the org scales scales more and more and so i mean the first thing to get right from my point of view is see ahead of the curve and hire the right people in that also can see ahead of the curve right or promote people up who kind of have the insight and can do that and that's hard and certainly I don't always get it right. You do your best and uh, you keep growing it. And in product in particular, the nature of how product works, I think changes as an organization scale. So somebody who's like a great product leader, when you have a team of 10 engineers and like that's the whole company and they're operating in that entrepreneurial mode is different than the product leader who's going to come in when you're a thousand person company and you now have a team of like 80 folks and you are working on these really big abstract strategic priorities. And there's, there's things that shouldn't change in that span, but there's definitely things that do and helping people kind of grow into those roles if they want, or like find other roles that are really very good for them as they go along is a big part of the game, I think. Yeah. And, and a big challenge, right? Finding the people mm-hmm. that are good. I mean, because Product lines change too, as far as maturity. Yep. Not along right. with the organization scaling. Like you might have a new product that's all innovative, and then at some point, it, it becomes incremental additions, right? Yeah. So the I type mean, of things for that are different. That's that's exactly right. And so one of the things, as I've been when when I joined Rippling as an example, there were really two PMs at the company. Parker had been the Uber PM the whole time, but that obviously wasn't going to scale. And so as I've been building out the product organization there for the last year or so. What I've told all the incoming kind of product leaders is like, look, what I need, my ideal case for you, prospective product leader, is number one, that you can operate in this highly entrepreneurial fashion without a net, without the infrastructure of like a mature product organization and a mature product marketing function, a mature sales. Like you're going to have none of that to start with. But I would like you to be able to grow into that future state leader right? That future state leader where it is a thousand person company and your own product line, you know, has tens to hundreds of millions of revenue on its own. And those are two completely different modes. And I think one of the things I can do at this point in my career better than I was able to when I was younger is identify people who can span those kind of two parts of the curve. And so one of the things, we've, one of the nuts we've been trying to crack here is 
finding those people and bringing them on and giving them the opportunity to really own things in a way such that they can they can go through that growth curve. Now, as you're building of this framework of PMs, do you think about getting people with different backgrounds? And I don't necessarily mean just you know, from a diversity standpoint, though I do think that's part of it and I think it's important, but coming from different backgrounds as far as domain expertise and maybe even characteristics like personality characteristics, do you start building out kind of that mosaic of product teams that have different strengths? Oh, for sure. It's in aggregate, that's something I think about a lot that, you know, over time I need a a group of product leaders who have like this range of skill sets, some who are really good at like this, the strategy and business folks side of it, some that are good with customers, some that are really good at like the detailed feature design. There's kind of like some table stakes things you have to have for everyone. On the other hand, for any single PMI hire, I'm just trying to find like somebody who's gonna be like a great fit for that role, right? Right yeah, over there. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's a little bit of like that first thing is always in the background. And actually finding the right person for a particular role is the most important thing. But I think the reality is that this kind of works itself out in some ways because each product is a little different. Each product needs, you know, a different emphasis. I mean, if you think about Rippling's business, like one of our products is, you know, insurance and benefits. That's an operationally really heavy role. There's like, you have to be able to talk with like insurance carriers and, and all of this stuff. And the kind of product leader who's going to understand that part of the landscape and be able to build product to suit it is different than, for example, the, the kind of leader who's going to be really great at building like a time and attendance system right, which has a a really different focus. And so I end up kind of accumulating that melange of skills over time as I kind of like look across the various products and find leaders for those. So you mentioned table stakes. What's in the table stakes group, you know, as you're you're hiring product (laughs) managers? What's the things that no matter what they have to have? Raw intelligence, number one, like the, the ability to like take this incredibly complex space and synthesize it and reduce that complexity down to something that is understandable be, will be great for the end user, whoever that end user happens to be. So that's non-negotiable. Second, a mind that thinks in terms of clear priorities, right? Can, can distinguish between the things that are nice and the things that you've got to do, the things that are imperative culturally for the company, the things that are not. Three, somebody who gets design, right? The product leader has to be able to work with where their design counterpart and like work with them to build a product that is going to be a great product. And that's that's also non-negotiable. And then fourth is communication, right? The ability to hear things appropriately, right? See, people, some words come out of someone's mouth and like, what did you actually hear out of that? Did you hear what the words they said or did you hear the intent behind them? Did you hear the frustration in it? Did you like all of those different dimensions of listening and then being able to on the other side of that understand it, interpret it, distill it, and communicate it out to everyone else as you're either, you know, representing that person's point of view or as you're making decisions about like what things to build on the basis of what you're hearing from all these constituents. And I think that's a that's a pretty rare gift, finding people who are good at that. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes me think too about decision frameworks, right? Like mm. how, how do you think about making those decisions with priorities, right? Whether you're contemplating whether to build this feature or not or how you're going to respond to this customer request. Do you have decision frameworks you've kind of put in place at Rippling? So I do not have like a single framework that I use kind of repeatedly aside from having a pretty draconian take on prioritization. <laughs> I think the the decisions, I think particularly in the case like Rippling where it's a bunch of different products, all of which are in different places relative to the market, that it's more about getting the right people in the room who have in-depth knowledge about the specific kind of customer and specific market they're dealing with 
I'm trusting them to come up with the right frameworks for that. And so, of course, like I have all sorts of suggestions when that, <laughs> when those kind of conversations come up. Sometimes the right framework is to do some sort of numerically based weighting thing. Sometimes the right decision framework is just purely anecdotal because it's so early that you can like see the big flaming white elephant in the sky and it's just obvious you should go there. Or sometimes it is it's much more subtle than that. And you're trying to understand like the competitive landscape and where do our differentiators matter here or not. And so I kind of like having a set of tools in, in the garage that, and I like pull out the hammer or the screwdriver or the, or the wrench or whatever I need kind of at the time that I need it, but I'm not too uh, dogmatic about it. Hey, when I, I see a flaming white elephant in the sky, I'm running towards <laughs> it. <laughs> but, but you also... Yeah, I don't, <laughs> You also mentioned something there that I wanted to, that was even more kind of, you know, made me want to ask a second question. And that was draconian approach to prioritization. Expound on that. Yeah. So I think particularly in businesses where you could do a lot, where the surface area of things that could be valuable is very large. Like in crypto, it's like, oh, here are all these different ideas for cool things we could do to advance crypto, to help Coinbase, to help our customers. Or in, in Rippling, it's like, here are the 32 other products we could build and the features in each one of those products. You have to have a lens that says, okay, first, here are the things, if we don't do them, they will actually kill the company, <laughs> right? Let's start there. And like holding a really hard line to that. And what I love about, and then the next line is, okay, what are the specific things we've said are the most important things we need to accomplish in our business aside from survival, right? What are the most, very most important things and kind of what falls into what actually aligns with that category. And then you recursively do that down like through each product. So here's what, what is with the company, but now for our payroll product, how is that true? For the filings team within our payroll product, how is that true? And you have this same prioritization scheme across everything. And I don't care if it's like an idea that product people have. I don't care if it's like a refactoring project out of engineering, like it's the same strict orientation. And what's what's fascinating about this exercise every time I do it is people inevitably want to believe, some people anyway, that their thing is more existential or closer to the existential side of the spectrum than it is. But when you force them to say under limited resources, like how are you actually going to stand up that thing that you think is critical against this thing you hadn't even thought of yet that somebody else thought is critical, it forces everyone to start thinking like a product leader. And that I think is gold because it creates an alignment in the organization that helps everyone focus on the true things that are like, that are existential and that really matter. And it helps eliminate the set of things that are like really nice to haves, but like fundamentally, you know, not right. And focuses the debate where it should be, which is on the things that are on the margin in between. And then like, which ones of those things should we do? Which one should we do? And what does that mean for how we should hire? What does that mean for how we should allocate people? And so I love that exercise. Yeah, you can tell. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big prioritization guy myself too. So yeah. I, I think it's important to have the right perspective, like you said, yeah. and to start with, uh, hey, let's make sure we're going to stay in business. As yeah, kind of but let me, yeah, let me add one addendum to that though, which is that it can be too tempting to like real overly rely on the framework. Because if you end up with like a consensus driven framework, you end up with like a really diluted like product roadmap. And so it's important on top of that to have like a clarity of vision and say like, irrespective of all that stuff, this is where we need to go, right? We need to get to a place. So no matter how hard it is, no matter how flaming white elephant, the flaming white elephants, <laughs> I've never used that phrase before, but somehow I think it's going to stick. The flaming white elephants where we need to get to, and that can override a lot of these otherwise like perfectly rational prioritization based arguments. Cause like fundamentally, like, does that lead us there? No. Well then that, no matter what the prioritization says, either that's the prioritization is the wrong answer or something else is like fundamentally broken and let's go. Let's go hammer on that. 
you know, we have a dinosaur here as a mascot, you know, that came out of just a strange set of occurrences. I feel like a future company and now I'm going to have to have a flaming white elephant for, for something for at least a little while, even if it's only <laughs> funny to me. So now this has been a blast, Jeremy. I had a great time, um, you know, but we're running out of time. So why don't I, I get to two final questions about you? First, what's your favorite product? You know, I am a, uh, I've loved games my whole life and I'm a huge board gamer. My wife and I met over board games and she beat me a couple times very early when we were dating. Actually, consistently beat me as we were early dating. And so it's been a part of my life. So my favorite product, actually, the one I use more than any other is a game on iOS and Windows and everywhere else called Through the Ages. And it is uh, it's my favorite board game ever. And the implementation of that board game is sublime. It's just really, really well done and just works the way it should. Every element of it is delightful with one exception of a new thing they introduced. But uh, but it's a it's a phenomenal product. And uh, I know it's not one everyone can identify with, but I... No, but I'm going to uh, have to check that out great. because I do like board games and I have yet to play that one. Oh, highly, highly recommended. Highly recommended. So I have to ask too, what board games was your wife consistently beating you on when you first started dating? <laughs> There's a game called um, Goa, which we were playing a lot back then, spice trading simulation, yeah, yeah. basically. And she beat me like four times in a row. And on the fourth time, I got pretty mad. And she's like, I thought you were letting me win. I'm like, I never let anyone win. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm not sure go. what that says, but we won't, we won't get into that. Yeah. <laughs> one, one final question for you today. Three words yeah, to describe sure. yourself. Uh, I would have to go with father. That's my most important job. Strategist, since I just love thank you these complex spaces. And this doesn't align in, in form with the other two, but empathetic. Love it. Love it. Thank you. This has been a blast. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.